Would you grab your Bibles and turn to John 7? Let's read our text this morning and then we'll send the kids out and we'll get into his word. John 7, we'll read 14 through 24. That'll be our focus time today. Good morning. Good morning. All right. John 7, 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority, seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses but from the fathers and you circumcise or do good he's talking about on a, a, a on a man circumcised man on the sabbath if on the sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken are you angry with me because on the sabbath i made a whole man's body well do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment So today I want to talk about the subject matter that um, really fills these verses 14 through 24 that we must trust Jesus as the truth. John all through this gospel is highlighting for us this reality that there's a great tragedy of unbelief. There are those that are going to consider, they're going to hear, they're going to see the truth of Jesus and they're going to reject um, the offer of salvation. And then there are, there's the beauty of those that will hear the message, see the truth of Christ, and they will believe. So if you would, just for a moment, go to, all the way to John chapter 1, six chapters to your left. And I want to highlight what John began the gospel with and what we will also see today. So if you would look with me in John chapter 1, in verses 10 and 11 at first, and then we'll see 12 and 13. So here's the tragedy of unbelief that John began in the first chapter and that we will continue to see today. John 1, 10. He, speaking of Christ, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So look look at this tragedy of unbelief. And so one is, here's this reality. So, So God had created the world. And he created the world and he came into the world and he's walking around in the world and, and people didn't recognize. And so, this, so the Gentile world didn't recognize who this one was that had come. And then John gets even more specific that God had made a covenant with this group of people called the Jews. And so Jesus comes directly to them to, to be among them, to communicate to them his heart. And so he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And so the world at large didn't believe his own people that he had covenanted with and who were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. They had rejected him as well. 
And then you get to verse 12, and John talks about the beauty of belief. And so that's the tragedy of unbelief, but look at the beauty of belief and the triumph of it in 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, there would be those that believed, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So, verse 12, some heard the message, some received the message, and some believed in the message, and by doing so, they found life in the name of Jesus. And this is talking about spiritual birth. And this birth that he's talking about here was not going to come because we did something. It wasn't by the will of man. It wasn't because our blood, that we had a, we had a bloodline that was really righteous and good. Our, our grandparents or great-grandparents, and it kind of flowed down to us. And so we're just naturally got birthed spiritually into this kingdom. No, it didn't have anything to do with that. It had everything to do, notice there, that it says this, that, that he gave the right to become children of God. This was not something that we did. It is something that he did. And so in the world today still, as it was when Christ was here, there's a great tragedy of unbelief of those who reject. And then there's a the great triumph of belief that people come to know Christ. They see the glory of who he is. And they enter into this relationship in salvation with Christ. And this is the very purpose. That's why John wrote this gospel. And I think this gospel, is, as I've shared in the past, is one of the most significant pieces um, that have been written in all of history. And John wrote it with a specific purpose in mind. In John chapter 20, in verse 30, this is what John wrote. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. In other, in other words, he's saying this. I saw a lot of other things that I didn't even write down. And listen to what he says. So he did a lot of other things in this, uh, other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. But then he says this. But these are written. I wrote these down for this purpose. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you would have life in His name. And so today, John's purpose of writing this next section is that same purpose, that we would believe in His name today, that we would come to know that He's true, that we can trust Him, that He is everything that you and I need. And so this subject matter today, you will see, is really, really important. So let me set the stage of where we are when we get to verse 14. So Jesus is six months from going to the cross. This is the Feast of the Tabernacles. It is in October. At the beginning of April, Jesus will be hanging from a cross. So the intensity of the moment, the purpose of why he came, is ever-increasing. So we know this, that in John chapter 5, he was in the temple. He walked by a man who was waiting by this pool of water, trying to get into the water because he believed a faulty superstition that if he could get into the water after the angels had stirred the water, his legs could be healed. And the man had been paralyzed for almost four decades. This had been the reality of his life. Jesus comes along. Jesus heals him. It's on the Sabbath. He tells the man on the Sabbath to pick up his mat and walk around. Well, that was against the rules. You couldn't heal on the Sabbath. You couldn't do a good act act like that. And then you couldn't tell somebody to break the Sabbath by picking up a mat 
and walking. So this man gets caught. He's like, what are you doing? This guy told me to pick up my mat. He made my legs whole. And I'm walking, by the way, for the very first time in almost four decades. Yeah, we don't care about that. We want to know about the guy who told you that you could walk because he broke the rules. That's what we're most concerned with. And so here we are, watch this, probably somewhere about 15 months later, and they're still angry about what he did. There's just a little side note here. We must let go of things that we hold against other people. Let go of them. Quit hanging on to them. They're hanging on that he broke their little rule. And 15 months later, they have another opportunity to stand in the presence of the Son of God. And because they're angry about something that he did 15, 16 months ago, they fail to listen and are not interested in listening. And it's almost as if they are their own worst problem. They're the ones keeping themselves from listening to what he wants to say today. So there's this great opposition. All the way from John chapter 5, it has increased... They don't know what to do about Jesus. And so what, what, they, what they decide to do is this. The only way we can get rid of this deceiver, this guy who's stirring up problems, is we got to kill him. Now watch the hypocrisy. They don't have a problem in the temple talking about murder. But they have a problem that somebody who couldn't walk can now walk. That's just the hypocrisy of that. And so they're hanging on to this. They're angry. Jesus knows, by the way, John chapter 7, verse 1. We looked at it last week. Uh, the northern part of Israel was called Galilee. Jesus was having to stay up in the northern part of Israel because down south in Judea, they wanted to kill him. So he's up there. His brothers come to him and say this. Hey, brother, we've heard about all this awesome stuff you're doing, teaching, healing, miracles, Hey, listen, if you want to capitalize on all the stuff that you're doing, you need to go down to headquarters, go from the north down to the south, and do all your miracles in the Feast of the Tabernacles. You know everybody from everywhere is going to come there. So why don't you go up there and do your work up there? And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to go up there. That's not the plan. My time has not yet come. You guys go on up. And so his brothers go up. And then Jesus, in the middle of the feast, decides, I'm going to go up. And just incognito. He leaves up in Galilee and he makes his way south down to Jerusalem. Now I want you to watch this. They want to kill him. They hate him. He is the center of their focus. They don't want to hear him teach anymore. They don't want to see anything that he does anymore. And I want you to notice what he does. He does the one very thing that his culture was telling him not to do. And I, went, I love it. I love it. So here's the temple. Pretend like this is the temple. And so he comes up in the middle of the feast. And he walks into the centerpiece of worship in the city, in the nation. And he does the very thing that they don't want him to do. He sits down and he proclaims the gospel. It starts pouring out of his heart. So here's the first point I want us to see this morning. What do you do in a world of great instability that hates God, hates Christ, hates righteousness, what do the people of God do? You know what the people of God do? They do just what Jesus did. They stand in the public circle. They do what we're doing this morning. You sit down and you proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Our culture today, our government today, 
all kinds of things, other entities, private organizations, all kinds of different things, all kinds of stuff in our culture are telling you and I as believers to shut our mouths about Jesus. Quit talking about it. Quit taking a stand on abortion. Quit taking a stand on this issue. Quit taking a stand on this. And the model from Christ is this, church. You step into the world, wherever it is that you go, and we make our stand. Now, Jesus modeled this for the apostles. He modeled that in the midst of opposition, you don't zip your lip. You use wisdom, and you proclaim Christ. You make your stand, and you live for the gospel. So you have to ask the question, so was Jesus the only one who got that? That God's people aren't to remain quiet. And I want to present to you this morning that he is not the only one who understood that. So he modeled that in the midst of opposition, in the midst of hatred. You live for the glory of of God and you live for the gospel. And this ragtag group of people that he had chosen that were following around, they wrestled with it, they wrestled with it. And then he dies, he rises from the dead, he hangs around for about 40 days, he ascends to sit at the right hand of his father, and they wait, and 50 days later... At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And this group of people that are kind of hiding and wondering what's going to happen get empowered and watch what they do. They step out into the streets of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 and they start talking this supernatural thing. They speak languages, foreign languages, that they'd never spoken before, proclaiming the gospel in the streets. And everybody had come. They were still there at Pentecost from all these other countries. They spoke all these different languages. And the apostles were out there speaking, let's just say Spanish, speaking German. And they had never had a class. They didn't have Duolingo app. They didn't have that. They didn't have any of that kind of stuff. And they're proclaiming the gospel. Well, Jesus still isn't popular and it causes some issues. So did they get it? They did. I want you to go with me, and I want to show you, because this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. Go to Acts chapter 4 just for a moment. Go, go to the right to Acts chapter 4. And I want to show us that the model from Christ to take a stand in the midst of opposition and to magnify the primacy of the gospel in a time of instability also became the model of what the apostles embraced. Acts chapter 4. And we're going to read in Acts chapter 5, verse 13 of Acts 4. So they, Peter and John have healed a, a man. Now when they saw, and they're, and they're brought, Peter and John are brought before the religious leaders. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they... Peter and John had been with Jesus. Now look up here for a moment. How in the world did they know that Peter and John had been with Jesus? And so I tried to think through this this week. So maybe the possibility is they, maybe they had seen Peter and John with Jesus at some particular point in time in the temple. And then I had this thought as a possibility. These men that... Peter and John are standing before Jesus in his trials had also stood before and they had seen Jesus stand his ground not be afraid of them not to be afraid of their threats they had beat him 
They had whipped him. They had ripped their clothes, accusing him of blasphemy. They had seen the boldness of Christ. And now there are two men standing before them that looked like one that had stood before them weeks ago. And they took note that these common, uneducated, hick fishermen, whatever you would want to call them, they were marked by something. These men looked and sounded like who? Jesus. They took note that they had been with Jesus and they recognized this in verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what are we going to do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. Look at 17. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, so what do we do to stop all of this talk? Further spread among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So this is our plan. So they called them and charged them, 18, to not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you judge that, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And I wonder for us in the room this morning, will this be our stance in the days ahead if it becomes more difficult to be a believer in this nation? Go to chapter 5 now of Acts. So they told them, don't you talk about Jesus. Stop it. Well, they continue to do things they... Um, we're going to see they get arrested here and put in prison. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles, and they put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened up the prison doors and brought them out and said, here's what you need to do. Go and stand in the temple. You know, that place they told you not to stand and do things Go and stand in the place they told you not to say things and do things. I want you to go there and speak to the people all the words of this life. In verse 21, And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak, and they began to teach. Same, watch, same temple, same place in John chapter 7 that Jesus stepped in. Just continuing to model what they had seen Jesus model for them. So, 21 And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with them, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. They're going to bring the apostles before them because they're these troublemakers continuing to talk. But when the officers came, 22 says they didn't find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the doors, and when we opened them, we found nobody inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them and wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men that you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. They're breaking the rules. They're not being quiet. Look at Acts 5.27. So they go and they grab them. And bring them to the leaders. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. 
And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you to not teach in this name. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We're going to obey God rather than men. So this guy Gamaliel stands up and says, Okay, look, guys, here's the deal. Let's be careful. If this is of God, it will stand. If it's not of God and it's of man, it won't. And so let's be careful about this. So look with me in Acts 5.38. So in, so in the present case, Gamaliel is still speaking. I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or, uh, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow throw them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them to not speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. (laughs) 41. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, 42 says, in the temple, publicly, And in the neighborhoods, house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now look up here. So John chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus is told, don't be doing this stuff. Quit talking about this stuff. Jesus comes into the city. He goes to the temple. He sits down. He teaches. Now Jesus has ascended. The Spirit has come. His followers are now proclaiming And the government comes and says, the religious authorities quit talking about this. They just keep talking about this. And so, was it just Jesus and just the apostles who got this? No, it's not. Watch. So there's a young guy named Saul. He's a Pharisee. And he knows all of this Jesus stuff that's going on in Jerusalem. Later on, he gets involved at persecuting the people of God. He meets Jesus, or Jesus meets him, on a highway in Acts chapter 9. And he's thrown from the horse, he's riding, and he's on the ground. And for three days and three nights, Paul thinks about, what am I going to do with my life? The guy comes, lays his hands on him. Something like scales fall away from Paul's eyes. And Paul decides, if you know what the first thing that Paul did? It says he stood up and he began to proclaim Jesus. And in every city, over the next several decades, that the Apostle Paul went, you know what he did? He went into places that said, don't talk about Jesus. And you know what he did? He talked about Jesus. Well, did it stop with him? No. Because Paul's last letter that we believe he wrote was to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. And he told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Timothy, my brother, be ready to preach the word in season when it's popular and everybody's like, go Jesus. And be ready to preach when it's not popular, when it's out of season and nobody's interested and people are mocking the people of God and mocking the one that you love. You preach it because a time is coming, Timothy, 
when people are going to gather for themselves teachers they want to hear, and they're going to have itching ears, and they will gather for themselves people to tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Did it stop with Timothy? No, it didn't. We sit in this room at the end of October in 2020, and guess what the world is continuing to tell the people of God? Shut your mouth and don't take a stand for the truth of the gospel. And what are people doing today at the end of October 2020? God's people all over the world today are continuing to say, we will obey God and we will proclaim the truth of Jesus. So what do we do in a world? What do we learn from Jesus? What do we learn from the apostles? What do we learn from Paul? What do we learn from Timothy? And Timothy would have passed it on to someone else. And we are, we are the fruit, watch, we are the fruit of the model of Jesus in this room today. That for 2,000 years, people have not shut up, they've continued to proclaim. So what do you do in a world, in a nation like ours today, of such great instability? In such great confusion. You do what Jesus did. You make him the centerpiece. And so when he walks into the temple and he sits down in the middle of the temple, he is making himself the centerpiece of that building. That building was about him. He's the fulfillment of that building. And he sits down and he proclaims. So our role, and one of the things we learn, and we're going to move on now from this, but Jesus models for us in the world of instability God's people magnify the proclamation of the gospel now I want you to grab this piece of paper it should be somewhere around you so really late last night these things had kind of been churning in my head and early this morning and and uh all seven of these things I'm just going to read them real quick are found in the life of Jesus. They are found in the Apostles' proclamation. They are found in the Apostle Paul. And they are found in Christians throughout church history. These seven layers of life and ministry are there. Jesus speaks. He says it in this text here. He speaks over and over in the Gospel of John. The Father sent me. We must see our lives as sent to a world that is broken. So we see our our lives as sent. Secondly, we are to go and stand... In places like this, gatherings on Sundays, gathering on Wednesday nights with students, whatever the case may be, life groups, women's groups, men's groups, like we did yesterday morning here, you gather in places and proclaim Jesus. You also go and gather in cultural religious places and you proclaim the truth of the gospel. So in Nepal, when we go there and other places, and we go to these Hindu places and these Buddhist places and people are bowing before these statues and these idols. I stand there always and I pray. And I pray and I pray against what is happening and taking place there. So the Apostle Paul, he would go to cities in Asia Minor. He would find, you know what the first thing he always did? First place he went was he found the Jewish synagogue. And he would go into the synagogue. And you know what he did when he went into the synagogue? He would proclaim Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, he's in a pagan, idol-worshiping land called Greece. He's in the city of Athens. I've been in the marketplace. In that marketplace, you can see Mars Hill where Paul converses. Paul steps into the religious setting of the marketplace in Athens in Acts 17. And he looks at all their idols and all their statues. And he comes to one where it says this, and to the unknown God. And Paul utilizes in the midst of their worship center 
and says, let me tell you about the unknown God that you don't have any clue about. God's people are called to do what we're doing this morning. We are called to go to proclaim in places where false worship happens. We proclaim the hope and the good news of Jesus. And fourthly, we submit to his plan regardless. You can't talk about that here. Well, we're talking about that here. We're talking about Jesus. Regardless of the opposition, you submit to his plan. The fifth thing is, there's a settled conclusion to be obedient to God and not man. Sixth thing we learn from Jesus and everyone else there. Suffering is to be seen as joy, not fear, when you suffer for his name. They, they, did, you, did you hear what they said? They beat them. Stop talking. They're bleeding, bruised, limping. Ah, my knee. Got hit with that stick in my knee. And they walk away going, we suffered for King Jesus. And we bear marks like Jesus bore marks for the glory of his name. I read this week an underground church leader and this underground church leader spoke about that they embrace suffering. They don't run from it because it's just the reality of where they live. You and I just don't understand that kind of mindset and that reality about things, but it's just incredibly, incredibly powerful. And lastly, there must, we must get to a place where there's a single-minded life that we are living for the glory of the gospel. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, it says this, and watch, every day, not once a week, every day, in the temple and in the neighborhoods, house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It must dominate our everyday life that King Jesus is everything. So I want to remind us this morning, I know that's just one verse and we're going to zoom through now. But here's the thing. What do we do in a world like ours right now? What do we do in America at the end of October 2020 and the craziness that's there? What do Christians do? Here's what Christians do. We make the proclamation and the primacy of the gospel. We make it and we embrace it. We stand with it and we live by it. So Jesus now is going to, in the rest of this text, in the next moments, he's going to share with us why we can trust and have confidence to live for the glory of the gospel. Why can we do that? We can do that because the gospel is true. It is the truth. Jesus is the gospel. He speaks the truth of the gospel. He is everything about that. So here's the second thing. Look at, look at 15 and 16. So the Jews, Jesus is there, he's teaching. They marvel saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, listen, my teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. So they had a, a debate. Last week we saw this. They said two big things that they were talking about. Either Jesus is just a good man or he's a deceiver. He's deceiving people. Now they have a third issue. Here's their third issue. Watch this. You hear this today in circles that I run in. He didn't go to our schools. Okay, who's this guy? How does he have all of this learning 
And he didn't go to our universities. He didn't go to our seminaries. Well, what they don't realize is that Jesus has never learned anything. He's the sovereign, all-knowing God. He didn't, he's never had any, to have anybody teach him anything. He knows everything. He knows all things. And so, so they're marveling and telling him that he's wrong. They're telling God that he's wrong and his understanding about things, and he knows things that they don't have any clue about. And so their struggle now is not, is he a good man or is he a deceiver? Now it's, okay, he, he's got some insight, but how in the world did he get the insight? But should we believe him because he's not gone to our schools? He's not kind of of us, and so he has a knowledge that's beyond them, and, and he has the best kind of knowledge. He's God. He's got God knowledge because he's God, and so he knows everything at all. And I love what we do at this church every Sunday morning where we quote a section of Psalm 119. And one of my favorite sections that we quote is when we get to verse 99 and get to verse 100. I love it every time. So I'm going to give you a little insight. When we get there, I don't even know where we were. I was out there today where we are. But this is, this is a truthful reality. There are 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds in this room today who can know God way deeper than people who are 70 in this room today. And this is what Psalm 119 says. 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. So that means that a 12-year-old in this room today that just at 12 gets it love God's word, I love God's word. You can know more than me whose occupation is this if the word becomes your meditation. Just in my mind, I'm thinking on, I'm thinking on the word. And then verse 100, so you go from 99 to verse 100, and it says this, I understand more than the aged. I understand more than the old people because I keep your precepts. I want you to notice this. Have you, ever met a, have you ever met a kid that loves Jesus? I have. We got students at our church here that love Jesus more than some of the adults in our church do. And they walk in God's word because they meditate on the truth of the word. And not only do they just have it in their mind, but they live it. They live it. And so they're looking at Jesus going, and they have no clue. How does this guy have all these insights, and he's not studied under our best teachers. Well, they don't know it. He didn't need to go to school because he's God. But you and I today can trust in this reality. We can trust in what Jesus says. Why? Because he is the sovereign, eternal God. So, so he's true for this reason. He says this, one of the reasons. So the Jews marveled, how is this man, has, has he have learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered the question of their conversation. He said this, here's the reality, I'm teaching the Father's words. This is just not something, I'm not some fresh face that's come upon the scene. I'm sharing with you the eternal word that has come from the heart of my Father. So you and I know, can know this today, that Jesus is true because he has been sent by the Father to fulfill everything that the Father had called him to do and be. 
John 18, 37. Jesus is just hours away from the cross. And he's talking to Pilate. And Pilate says to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered and said, well, you say that I'm a king, but let me tell you my perspective of things. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness about the truth. And everyone who is of the truth, here's what they do. They have one thing in common. They listen to my voice. So everybody's of the truth, listen to my voice. And then Pilate asked this question of the ages. So Pilate said to him, what is truth? And I want to just set forth in the room today that what is truth is actually a who is truth. It's Jesus. And the words that have come to us can be counted on for this reason. A sovereign eternal father sent his one and only son to come here to this earth to proclaim the words of the father. Jesus, who had all authority, did not act on his own authority, but acted on the authority of his father and said and did everything that his father wanted him to so you and i in this room today can have confidence that jesus is true his words are true because he has been sent by the father let's move on to the next point this is the longest point i've ever had and i don't know why i did this i wrote this three months ago but it's really long and it's kind of confusing and it's bad english you school teachers are going to have a problem when this gets up on the screen i'm sorry i'm not an english teacher Jesus is true because he fulfilled the will of his Father, and in that he calls us and establishes for us a confidence in his word that is authoritative and true. So I have great hope in this room today that what I'm proclaiming here is not some fresh face on the religious scene from 2,000 years ago. But I have the great hope. Can you sense the power in the room this morning that this proclamation that is just, it falls on us. There's, a, there's, a, there's something unique that happens when we do this. Because these are not my words I'm proclaiming this morning. I'm proclaiming something that came from the eternal Father. He gave the Son to say. The Son walked into the temple at the Feast of the Tabernacles 2,000 years ago. He said these words. They fell upon people. They marveled at it. He had power and authority and you and I can trust that what has come to us today and have confidence in it because Jesus fulfilled everything that the Father wanted Him to fulfill. So therefore, He's holy, He's perfect, so when He speaks, His words are authoritative and true. And so therefore, they come to us so that you and I would have confidence in these words. Now, look at 17, because this is connected to this point. Listen to what Jesus says. So how can we know... How can I know that what Doak is proclaiming today and what's written in here is authoritative and true and I can bank my life on it? There's a way that we can know this and look what he says in 17. If anybody's will is to do God's will, if you desire to do God's will, you will know something. Jesus said, then he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So watch what Jesus does. Here's how he answers it. If I've come just to proclaim a bunch of stuff and I'm just a fresh face on the scene, you'll be able to tell that I'm just doing things to be about me or to be a fresh voice. But 
If you truly desire to know God and to walk in God's will, when you hear my words and you embrace them and you obey them and you live them out, you will come to know, watch this, you will come to know that everything that I've said is absolutely true because you know it in your life. So I encourage us this week to go home and to live the words of Macbeth from Shakespeare. I want everybody this week to live Macbeth. It sounds crazy, right? How, how do I do that? Well, if we tried to do it and we spoke in that English version and all that stuff, the theists and thouists and all of that, there would be no power and authority. But if we go home this week and we desire to follow God and do God's will and we live these words, you know what will happen? You'll find on a Tuesday afternoon in a tough situation at work that everything that Jesus said is true. And so listen to what Jesus says. As they're questioning his teaching, he says this. If you really want to desire to know the Father's will, you'll know if what I'm teaching is right or you'll know whether it's just me just saying a bunch of stuff. Because if you want to do God's will and you want to walk in God's will, you will come to know that it is absolutely true. And so this honored, honest desire to live out God's will, comes to, we come to know it to be true, and we come to know that Christ's teaching is from God. This is not just a religious guy 2,000 years ago who was kind of new on the scene, who was just a good man or he was a deceiver, whatever the case may be. No, this teaching is from God. And we come to know this, that it is teaching that has the authority of God because it is connected to the Father. And one of the, one of the great dangers of our world today, and it, and it seems to be ever increasing in the younger generations who are connected to church or semi-connected to church, is they don't like the God who is, and so they want to make a God in their own image or their own version of him and so the things they like about jesus i'll embrace those the things i don't like i'll kind of cut those off and they and they're making an image of jesus that is not truly there it's a god of their own making and the fruit of that has been devastating and let me give you some proof of that credo is this conservative group of believers just did a survey among the younger generation and I want you to hear this. They surveyed them. How do you view Jesus? 68% of them said that Jesus is an exalted creature. Creature. Not the exalted son of God. 68%. George Orwell. I don't know anything about his life other than he wrote a book. I don't think I know about him since 1984. And then I found a quote this week. And I want you to listen to this. He one time said, In a time of universal deceit, which is our world today, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. It's very insightful. I don't, I, don't know if, I don't know anything about him. And I think we're living in days like that. It just sometimes sounds revolutionary just to speak truth because our culture is so dominated by lies. There's a new recent survey as well among people who come to church at least two times a week, or two times, two times a month in our country, 44% of self-identified Christians recently 
declared that the Bible is ambiguous and not clear on the issue of abortion. 44%. 34% of those that were surveyed who claimed to be Christians said it is morally acceptable for the mother to abort her child if she is going to have some financial or emotional discomfort connected to the child. And I've been talking about this in these days because I think it's, we're just in critical, critical days in this country. Critical days. And if we, who claim the name of Jesus, have drifted so far to think that the Bible is not clear when it is clear, then we're going to continue to see the deterioration of the church, of the family, and a number of different things. So that's the, that's the great danger, I think, really more connected to probably non-believers who are claiming the name of Jesus. But then there's another one, and I just want to talk about this one for a moment, that's a danger for us in the room this morning that do have a relationship with Jesus. I've been there in, the, in, in my own life where I would say I love Jesus, but the reality of my life is I'm not satisfied in Jesus. And I don't know if you've been there before. I would say I love him, but I just have not finding full satisfaction in him. And when these moments happen in my life, it's because my circumstances aren't so pleasing and I wish things would be a little bit better. But I think satisfaction transcends circumstances. That's why you can leave the presence of religious leaders who have just beat you for the name and you can walk away and go, yeah, I'm connected to Jesus. My life is like him. I've suffered for his name. And I think one of the great challenges for us is to move to that place where we are not only deep lovers of Jesus and in awe of who he is, but we're just deeply satisfied that there's nothing in this life that can touch our heart and our soul like him. And so we in this room this morning can have great confidence that what has come to us is authoritative. It is true because Jesus has fulfilled the will of God. And in that, he has called us to have a confidence in who he is and what he says. And I believe desiring to do his will leads us to know his word. And I believe that once we know his word, it leads us to know that his word is true because we live it out and we know that we can have confidence in it. It works. It works. It's powerful. It transforms relationships. And I believe that knowing the truth leads to a satisfied freedom. And I want you to notice those two words. A satisfied freedom. To not get connected to the trappings of this life. All right, let's look at the next things we finish up here. Then Jesus says, let me tell you something else about me. He calls us to seek the glory of God as he did for seeking the glory of God will keep us in the truth. So verse 18. So the one who speaks on his own authority, he seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in him there is no falsehood. So notice what Jesus says. He, he says this, I came not just to be about Jesus. And he could be about Jesus, he's God. But he came in this mission that he came to proclaim and live to honor the Father and to fulfill what the Father wanted him to fulfill. 
And so Jesus says, listen, the one who just speaks on his own authority, he's seeking his own glory. But Jesus is saying, listen, I'm living and speaking. Though he could get the glory because he's the son of God, I'm living and speaking this way because I want my father to get all of the glory. So if you and I remain in the truth, it's going to come when we know this, that the words of Jesus were spoken for the Father's glory. They had come from the Father. Jesus spoke them to go back to the Father, to honor the Father. Secondly, Jesus' words are true, for He sought the Father's glory. That was His great passion. So not only um, were they spoken to the Father's glory, but He sought the Father's glory by speaking these words. And thirdly, when we come to know Jesus because of the reality that He fulfilled the words of the Father, we come to know the one in whom there is no lying, there is no falsehood, it is everything that is absolutely true. And that's what Jesus closes, verse 18. And in Him, this one who came to seek the will of the Father, to not act on His own authority, but to honor the Father, in Him, in me, there is nothing that is false. Everything is true. So when we embrace this, we will be kept in the truth and we will find our greatest security in an unstable world by abiding in the words of Christ. Here's the next one. We can trust that Jesus is true and His words are true because of the power that was connected with Him because of His miracle work or the work of His signs. So they have an issue here. Back months ago, on a Sabbath day, he made a man's legs well and he made them walk. And by doing so, he violated their rules and their things that they didn't want him to do. And then Jesus says, y'all are hypocrites. And let me tell you how you're hypocrites. One, you're in the temple here, God's holy house, and you want to murder me. You got murder in your heart. So that's a problem. The other thing is, is y'all practice violating, according to you, violating the Sabbath all the time. A baby boy is born. He's to be circumcised on the eighth day. So all over Israel, boys that were born, eight days, and then eight days later it fell on the Sabbath. What did they do? Well, to not, even though it was the Sabbath and you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, what did they do on that Sabbath? They circumcised those boys. And so Jesus says, one part of the body, y'all are willing, on the Sabbath day, to make sure that you obey what the Word says, and on the eighth day you do this. Y'all got a problem with that, but I want, and you really, you, you don't have a problem with that, but you have a problem that I made a whole man's body whole, and y'all have a bigger issue with that. Y'all are okay with one body part following the Word of God, but I did something that healed an entire man. Now he's got a hope in a future. He can walk. He can work. He doesn't have to beg anymore. And y'all have an issue. And so the, the, the emphasis here is to see this. We can trust Jesus because he had the power of God on his life. And we can trust him because this is God. Here's the last thing this morning. Jesus says in verse 24, Do not judge by appearances, outside appearances, but if you look at me, make sure you judge me with right judgment so as they looked at jesus they began to judge him ever since john chapter 5 for the healing of this man on the sabbath which to them was just an 
um, a direct breaking to the additions that they had added to the law. But not only that, Jesus had claimed to be equal with God, and they had a problem with that. Um, and yet, at the same time, they were ignoring the fact that on the Sabbath they were wanting to murder God in a body in their presence. And they were okay with that condition in their hearts. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded that even in this room, we should be careful as to what is in our hearts, that we just are okay to leave it there and ignore the great hypocrisy sometimes that dominates our lives. And if we look at Jesus, I encourage you to do that today, whether you are a follower, a hater, don't believe in God, whatever the case may be, I would encourage you to give an honest look because that's what Jesus encourages people to do here. Don't judge us by an appearances. He says this, but honestly look and judge by a right perspective. Not approaching to prove something is wrong, but approaching to see if it's true or not. So he says, listen, don't judge by appearances. So what were they doing? He had no formal education. So why listen to him? He hadn't studied in our schools. They were looking at outside appearance that they couldn't, was it right to, okay, to circumcise on the eighth day, but it's not right to heal a man's legs. So they were judging from an outside perspective. They were also judging him that he didn't meet what they thought Messiah should look like. And so they had this idea of what he was going to look like, and now they're judging him, and, and not by a right judgment, but just looking at him thinking, okay, something wrong with him. He's not what we wanted. And so they were judging him by an outside appearance. I would encourage every non-believer in this room today, I would encourage every skeptic in the room today to judge Jesus with a right judgment. Look at it and see if it's true. He's not threatened by any of it at all. I think he welcomes an examination of who he is. And so these words here, but judge with right judgment, this word judge means have a view to see if something is right or wrong. You know, it's interesting. Um, a couple weeks ago, I had a Gideon. Um, you may not know Gideon is a guy in Judges, but there's a ministry called the Gideons. And they put Bibles in hotels. And he sat in my office a few weeks ago, and I was a little freaked out for a moment because he sang to me. Just a grown man in my office singing to me, but it was very moving. But he began to tell me stories of hotel rooms during COVID. I don't know if you know this, but <clears throat> there's a lot of suicides that happen in hotel rooms. People rent a room and they go into a hotel room and they shoot themselves or they take pills and, and kill themselves. And he told me story after story, he could have kept on, of during these last seven months of people going in, renting a hotel room, wanting to kill themselves and opening up a drawer and there's a Gideon Bible in the room and they start reading the Word of God and they don't kill themselves and they come to faith. So judge, if you're a skeptic, judge to see if it's right or wrong. This word right here means see if it's faultless, see if it's innocent, see if it conforms to God's will, and it does, but don't discard the gospel without proper, honest judgment. 
And you can reject him and you can have honest judgment of Jesus in this room today. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to stand before him one day and give an account for your honest look and still rejecting it. And it will be to your great loss. And so Jesus, on this day, sets himself down in the midst of the temple and says, I'm your hope. I'm the truth. I'm the truth. And it's what we need today as his people in this time. Let's pray.